Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warnings that it gives to us, the times when uh, it, it checks us. Father, that it it exposes to us our sins. We are thankful for this, Father, because we know that it is you as a good father disciplining your children and sanctifying us, making us uh, worthy vessels prepared for uh, heaven, prepared to be in your presence. And so, Father, we pray that this word would do its work on us and that we would be sanctified, discipline us as a father disciplines his children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to call out Charlie right now and say thank you for leading us in worship. Thank you. That was manly. It was good. And we're thankful that you gave your voice to the Lord this morning. Praise God. So other boys, take a cue. All right, the Apostle Paul now is coming to the end of this letter to to Timothy. And in the, in the section we, we looked at last week, he breaks out into that praise of God, that doxology. His doxology would have been a good place for the letter to end. Uh, praising God and then maybe a few um, few statements to... Uh, Timothy, but instead he um, he turns to a topic that he has just recently left. He talked about the rich earlier in uh, verses seven through ten, and uh, and it's as if he's he just has one other thing that he's got to get off of his uh, out of his mind, out of his pen for uh, Timothy to pay attention to. But remember what he says back in verse. Verses 7 through 10 of chapter 6. He wrote, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into, into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I mean, he's intense there, and yet he has still more to say on that topic. Those are strong words, and um, 
You know, verses 7 through 10 are, are such memorable words that even unbelievers remember these verses from Scripture, especially that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And so even though they're strong, they're memorable words, the Apostle Paul returns to the topic of the rich as if he just can't emphasize enough how destructive the love of money and the delusions of the rich man can be. So here we are again talking about the rich man, the man of great wealth, the man of of many means, the man who does not have to worry about his daily bread, but can worry about all those excesses that his wealth can buy him. And this time, the Apostle Paul does not simply talk about the destructiveness of riches as he he did in the previous verses, but he tells Timothy to instruct, to exhort, to order even those who are rich in this present world. Timothy is to go and instruct and exhort Uh, Timothy is to give particular kind of instruction to a particular type of person, right? He's going to have to use his judgment, and he's going to have to say, okay, Paul is telling me to exhort the rich. Who are the rich that I need to go exhort? He's going to make distinctions among the people. And um, so he's to go to the wealthy and warn them squarely about the thing that likely above all else defines them. The rich are defined by their wealth, their money. There are rich men that you would never know are rich. It's true. There are rich men that you'd you'd never know it. They do not live like the rich man. They they don't trust in their wealth, but they trust in God. And so they just don't flaunt their financial status. But that is, in my experience, not as common as the rich man who, who flaunts his wealth Um, you know, by his designated giving to churches, by his cars, by his vacations, by his clothing, um, by his attitude. And there may be a third category, too, like that of the rich young ruler we read about in the Gospels. He had kept the commandments. He had a certain level of godliness, but when Jesus exhorted him specifically about his wealth, his property, he was exposed as a materialist. He left Jesus because he owned much property. He may have looked godly, but his heart was wrapped up in his wealth. Right? He was an idolater. He had made an idol that he was serving out of his, his wealth. So how do we know if we're the rich man? How do we know if this passage applies to us or not? Um, Do we compare ourselves in the U.S. and our income with the average incomes of people in in third world countries? I mean, if so, we're all the rich man. We're all rich. We're all rich people. Do we compare ourselves with other people in the United States? If so, not all of us are rich, but only some of us are rich. Um, Do we think of the rich man as the man of extraordinary means like an Elon Musk or a um, Warren Buffett, right? If so, this passage applies to maybe 30 people in the world. Um, or is whether um, or not a man is rich, does it have to do with the way he approaches money rather than the amount of wealth he has accumulated? In other words, the rich person is the kind of person that is enough money that he seldom, if ever, just has to deny himself. 
right? And you think about that, and that may, again, include all of us in this. Um, if that's the case, if it's about denying yourself and, and whether or not you do that, then most of us are rich. But there is the poor which we will always have with us. So there has to be poor and rich. There are distinctions between these two. So we can't just say that this passage applies to all. It does not. It is specifically honed just to the rich. Yet there are tendencies in all of us toward the love of money. Right? And that is something that afflicts both the rich and the poor. But the exhortation here is to the rich, to those who are wealthy. Um, there is not a certain amount that we can say puts you in this category. But what does qualify a man as a rich man then? Um, perhaps the rest of the verse will help. The rich in the present world are conceited or proud and fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Okay, so the rich man is the person who considers his wealth and makes the judgment that because of his wealth, he's better than other people. You know, and so, so that can kick in when maybe we didn't make a lot of money, but we got a bonus at the end of the year. We're like, hey. And our pride kicks in. And in addition to that, in addition to just the pride that comes with money, he's deluded thinking that wealth is certain, and so he fixes his hope on riches. The rich person thinks his money will get him into or out of most situations, most all situations. He uses his money to influence those around him, or better yet, he uses the threat of his money to influence those around him. The rich man, in other words despises the poor man, thinking that the poor are, are, as a whole, lazy. And, of course, there are many poor who are poor because they're lazy. Um, Proverb tells us to expect such a result, but the rich man can't help to look at himself and boast in his own power his own resourcefulness, and consequently to look down on those who are either too stupid or too lazy to do the same. So he just boasts in his own resourcefulness. Then the rich man is the man who trusts in his riches. He's found the answer to all of his difficulties, and when he floats around in his pool, he thinks, you know, money really is the answer to everything. He's deluded about riches being certain, though. And that they are, in a sense, eternal, that they are abiding and a guarantee for the future. He rests in his money and he thinks, I'm fine, look around me. I'm safe with such a savings account, with such investments and such property, such income. His life consists, then, in the things he possesses. And he says to his soul, soul, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And so his ease is found in his earthly possessions, not in God. Not in the God of heaven. He likes what he can see more than what he cannot see and cannot control. He prefers his... I mean, to put it starkly, he prefers, he prefers his 401k to God. 
He finds comfort in money more so than he does in an omnipotent God. He has transferred to money the concept of omnipotence. That money can do everything he needs from extending his life to giving his, him pleasure and rest to allowing him to do good works to guaranteeing his spiritual well-being. Yet when, what he refuses to think about is the simple fact that riches are uncertain. Though the testimony comes to him continuously. Right, The man who desired to build bigger barns to store his crops and who took his ease, here are the next few verses in Luke 12. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the fool trusts in his wealth, though it can't save him, and it's not permanent, and it flies away as fast as it came. When the day of your death comes, what will your wealth do for you? And when standing before God on the last day, and he reminds you that all the wealth you had came from his very hand, and that you spent it on yourself rather than for him and his glory, what then? It will only heap on you condemnation. You'll be like Gollum, right, clinging to to his precious, though it was the very thing that was killing him. The thing that held him in bondage. Thinking the thing that holds you in bondage to death is the thing that can save you is twisted. This is a temptation for all of us when it comes to money, when it comes to wealth. We put our trust in temporal things and simply leave off depending on God's future provision or thanking him even for our past provision. The rich man doesn't just forget to pray for his daily bread. He sees no need to ask God for such minuscule, ridiculous benefits, right? It was his wealth that got him that bread. And he lets everybody know that it was his industriousness and his wealth that bought him his bread. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy to exhort those rich men those rich people, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. But on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Don't be proud, rich man. Whatever you have has been given to you. Don't fix your hope on your riches because they are uncertain. Instead, fix your hope on God. Instead, fix your hope on the one who Paul just described in this way. Remember how God is described just in the previous few verses. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal authority, eternal dominion, Amen. So when you begin to contrast wealth with God, the God who created all things and who sustains them by his power, when you contrast gold with the one who created gold, when you contrast the nations and their wealth with the God who created earth and every man, when you contrast your portfolio with God who is eternal, I mean, you should wither in humiliation, even if your first name is Warren. This is, this is mankind after Adam, though. 
He thinks that a wooden idol he shapes into a god and uses you know, the excess to keep himself warm is more powerful somehow than the God who spoke the worlds into existence. This is us when we trust in the uncertainty of riches. We're trading the God who created the world for the goods that he created in the world. Right? It, it seems the only time we really realize this is, or at least one of the times when I realize it, is when I attend funerals. Right? There's something so clarifying about seeing a dead person. It is the time when I f- most feel the utter vanity, the utter ridiculousness of this life. It's the time when I know and remember the impossibility of wealth doing anything to stop death. Right? It's, the, it's one of the few times when we feel ridiculous for running after the things of the world with such you know, desperate passion. We will all stand before God without any of the delusions of wealth around us, naked before the gaze of a holy God. When the rich man stands before God, he will despise himself for for forgetting God his entire life. Notice that the Apostle Paul describes God as the God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. What we have seen, what we have, you know, what we have in our lives, what we have has been given to us by God and given to us to enjoy. What we, you know, it's not that we can't enjoy what he has given to us, but what we can't do is trust in what he's given to us. We may still enjoy what he's given to us, right? We can, we don't have to become stoics, in order to obey this verse, we 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 uh, we can still rejoice in the in the taste of bacon, right? We don't have to deny ourselves. We can enjoy those things that God has given to us, but what we can't do is trust in them. To enjoy what God has given to us is, in some sense, to give thanks to God for what He's given to us. To trust in it though, is to usurp God's authority and replace it with what um, was given to us by him. And that's ridiculous, to replace what he's given to us uh, is just is unthankfulness at its core. Calvin writes this, he says, Moreover, this is, this is in few words the doctrine that we have here to mark, that we trust in God not only for the heavenly life and for the salvation of our souls, but to know, even for this fleeting life, in all things that hang thereupon, that when God placed us in this world, he reserved for himself this office, to be the father of the household, and to have care of us as his creatures, that we must wait for all goodness at his hands. In other words, God is our father not only in regard to our eternal salvation, but also in regard to every single little provision we receive in this life. Every single peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? Every, we enjoy it because God is our Father, and he gave it to us. Right? Every single penny de- deposited in our piggy banks is because he is our Father. Right? Every single 
uh, shingle above our heads that keeps us dry when when it rains is because he is our father and he's given us good things. We enjoy these temporal provisions, especially because they demonstrate to us that God is our father. And for that, we give him great thanks and praise. The rich man never does that. The rich man does not stop and consider that what he has is from a benevolent father. He boasts that he put the shingles over his head. He will not give credit for even a single, single, what are those, um, sorry, a single one of those sesame seeds on top of a, a hamburger bun. He will not give God credit. Christians, though, can, can know the true quality of all God's provisions, great and small, knowing it came from him as a father to his children, as a gift to enjoy. And so, really, the man who trusts in his wealth never gets to enjoy his wealth. But the man who doesn't enjoys all things, right? Because it's, it's, you give thanks for it. You realize it's a gift to you, right? The, the taste of food to the rich man is bitter, Right, because it's been all of his labor that's helped him to receive it. But the but the Christian can go and can taste that food and can give thanks to God. Again, the Apostle Paul follows the pattern of don't do this, instead do this, flee this, and pursue that. He tells Timothy what the rich should do instead of being proud and trusting in their riches. They should, he says, do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Those three exhortations boil down to this. The rich man should be exhorted to willingly part with his riches for the good of other people. That's the antidote to trusting in our wealth. Hold to the wealth loosely, right? Because it's fleeting. While while you have it, do good with it. Um, That may mean a lot of things. That, That may mean laying up an inheritance for your children. That may mean giving gifts to those who have particular needs. It may mean finding those needs and, you know, actively trying to find those who have needs and giving richly to it. It may mean providing to your church and her needs even beyond the required tithe. It may mean supporting missionaries. It may mean giving to a poor church in your family or a poor family in your church. it It can mean a thousand different things. You know, perhaps God has, has done two things with you. He has given you means, and he has brought you into a church family. He's given you means, he's brought you into a church family, and perhaps, perhaps those two things are, are connected, right? Maybe, maybe your, your wealth is not just your private wealth. Maybe he's given you means and brought you into a body so that that body can be blessed by your means, Right? Perhaps, perhaps they're related. Think about that. Your wealth was given to you by God so that you could bless those in the church that are your spiritual family. It's our temptation, isn't it, to be cruel and stingy. It's my temptation to be cruel and stingy with my money. We reason that you know, someone else's lack is because of their stupidity. Um, we reason that, that way so that we don't have to share our excess. You know, if we have a, a reason not to share, you know... I wouldn't want to support them in their stupidity. I do that all the time. Perhaps he has brought us together in one body, not simply that we have spiritual things in common, but so that we also have physical 
things in common. Um, the deacons will certainly agree with that statement because they have charge of, of the benevolence fund that we use exactly in that regard. They would say to us, but, but excel still more, right? Excel still more. And let us do it not simply because it's a good thing to do, but because it will discipline our love of money. It will discipline us. Um, counteract your greed with generosity. Um, that's what the Apostle Paul is commending to us here. Um, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul is saying, don't consider your wealth so much as a blessing that allows you to indulge yourself, but as an obligation with which you must bless others, right? Not as a blessing where you're like, oh, I can indulge myself and isn't life good and I've got comfort and rest, but as a, as a responsibility, right? God has given me this wealth in order that I might care for others and bless others and allow others to know rest and comfort. If the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, perhaps we should look at wealth more as a curse than a blessing. Or, you know, I don't want to overspeak as an obligation that God gives us as a means to blessing others. Um, he's testing you with your wealth. God is testing you with your wealth. Calvin says, why does, give, why does God give more of the world's goods? Why does God give men more of the world's goods than they have need? He wants, as we said, to prove their charity whether they be courteous or not, when he has given them resources with which to do well. Right? He, he wants to see if you're generous. Right? So he gives and gives to you, and he's testing you to see whether you're generous and to work generosity in you. Right? Instead of seeking to be rich, you are to be rich in good works. Right? Instead of hoarding, you are to be generous and ready to share. How? <laughs> Because you're not trusting in the uncertainty of riches, but in God himself. Your riches are uncertain. Get that through your head. Your riches are uncertain. They're here one day and gone tomorrow. While you have them, do good with them. While you have them, do good with them. Be generous and ready to share. And all the while, put your trust then in God. Right? Those who live in such a way, being rich in selfless good works, Paul goes on to say, are doing nothing less than storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Which is exactly why they thought they were storing up money, isn't it? A good foundation for the future. Prudence and all of that, right? But, God's, but God, God gives wealth to the man who parts with his wealth. right? God gives wealth to the, to the generous man so that he may prove his generosity... And he may truly store up a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So rich men think of their wealth as their foundation. We're reminded here that it's a bad foundation. The good foundation for the future is not found by amassing wealth, but by the godly use of wealth, the generosity of the heart, and you know, action produced by regarding wealth in the right perspective. God desires for us to use what he has given us for godly ends, right? He desires for us also to depend upon him. And in regard to our money, that means being more concerned to store up treasures in heaven than treasures on earth. 
right? And how do we store treasures in heaven? How do we store treasures in heaven? By means of good works, by means of faithful living, by means of loving our neighbors, by means of doing what is right, by means of generosity toward others. In the book of James, we read these strong words for the rich. Here's how you'll remember this as soon as I get into it. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. That's not how we think of the rich, right? We envy the rich. And James is like, no, weep and howl, rich. There are miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. See, they're uncertain. They've rotted. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume you like fire. In other words, you hoarded it, it rusted, and that rust is going to witness against you, he's saying. You kept it to yourself. When that, when that wealth was good wealth, you could have been generous toward others. It is in the last days that you have stored up treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, in which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. See, these rich ones weren't even paying their laborers. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, right? the Lord of armies. You have lived luxurious, uh, luxuriously on the earth and led a life of want and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Right? There's power that comes with wealth, but these, these rich ones have used that wealth in ungodly ways and in exactly the opposite way that Paul is commending to us in 1 Timothy 6. The stinginess of the rich man, notice, witnesses against him. He he has refused to pay those who even worked for him instead of being generous, which would have led to a foundation of riches stored in heaven. So, So you needn't take a vow of poverty to be righteous. It's not what Scripture teaches. You needn't take a vow of power to be righteous. If rich, if you are a person of means, you merely need to be generous and ready to give. And give. Not merely ready to give, but give. Be generous. Right? This will prove that you are not trusting in your wealth. That you are depending upon God for his, his continual provision. And so... May God bless us in that way, and may we become more concerned about laying up a good foundation for the, in heaven for the future rather than a corruptible and fleeting and bad foundation and, a, and it just a, something that will, will, have no, will be of no help for you when you stand before God on the last day.